I, I would like to hope that he would be remembered as an example and an inspiration to people of selflessness, of compassion, of dignity, of generosity, of eloquence and single-mindedness and determination to be the best person that he could be. Last weekend, Bob LeSueur MBE passed away at the wonderful age of 102. Generations of Islanders will remember Bob as a passionate teacher with a vast range of knowledge and a keen attention to detail and the pursuit of getting things right. However, Bob will be best remembered for his unswerving commitment to compassion, humanity and standing up to oppression. It began during the occupation when he helped coordinate the shelter of escaped Russian slaves and continued for the rest of his life. Only earlier this year, he walked 5,000 steps around his St Clement Garden in support of the people of Ukraine. One person who knew Bob well in his later years was historian and broadcaster Chris Stone, who helped Bob publish his memoirs in 2020. Chris joins me now to reflect on the life of his great friend and great Jerseyman. Describe how you got to know Bob. Well, I've known of Bob for many years um, in my job as a journalist. Often we interview historians and people who survived the occupation. And of course, um, he was one of those. And so I, I knew of him. I knew him to interview, but not really as a close friend until a few years ago when Simon from Seeker Publishing asked me to write Bob's memoirs for him. And I jumped at the chance because I love to hear the stories of uh, these people that have got such tales to tell. And so I went to see him and his home. And he lived in this beautiful um, house right on the beach in St. Clement at La Rock. It looked straight out to sea. And it was a warm day and we sat there and um, he was very, uh, Bob was a very erudite man, uh, but he was also very particular and he wanted to sort of almost interview me to see if I was somebody who would be, who would write him fairly and accurately and represent the facts as he saw them. Um, and uh, so we, we chatted for a long time and eventually I suppose he said to Simon, yes, I think he'll do and um, and that was it. We began there, and over the course of the next year, we we met regularly to um, talk, primarily. And I wrote, and because Bob's eyesight wasn't particularly good, every week I would bring in the freshly written copy. And uh, anybody that's had Bob as a teacher would know that he was very particular. Details must be correct. There's no room for error. There was no black or uh, there was no grey. It was black or white. It was correct or it was incorrect. And so every week I'd come in shaking rather, and I'd read my copy to him, and I'd get halfway through a sentence, and he would say no, and I'd say sorry, Bob, no, it wasn't like that, and he would correct me, but with a smile, and gently, and I knew that what he was telling me would be meticulously correct because he was meticulous about everything, Bob. And I suppose out of my willingness to be meticulous and to work with him, there came a mutual respect. And I think he respected what I'd done in the writing that I'd done and appreciated that his memories were finally down on paper for people to read. And what was the sense you got from Bob in sharing his stories? Was it one of humility? Um, was it one that you felt very on that this was a very special tale that you were 
helping to tell. Bob really had to be strong-armed into telling his tale because a very humble man and didn't at all like to blow his own trumpet. And he inherited this from his mother. Perhaps we'll talk about her later on. But um, no, he, he really had to be coerced because he always said that what he did was not brave, it wasn't remarkable in any way, it's what lots of other people did, and he absolutely did not want to be held up as any kind of beacon of heroism or anything like that. Um, so it was always with great humility, and I always, I, I had to push him very hard when we were writing the book, actually, to speak about his own feelings and his own fears and his own concerns during the war. He was happy to, to deal in facts, but feelings were much harder. You, you called the book Growing Up Fast, an, an Ordinary Man's Extraordinary Life <laughs> in Occupied Jersey. Now, you've perhaps touched on the ordinary side. He was a very humble man who didn't want to blow his own trumpet, but it was an extraordinary <laughs> occupation. And perhaps this is a good time just to... Ref I know you've got five years of, of, of content really to share, but if we could just really try and pinpoint what made it extraordinary. Well, I've got to tell you, we went through... I, every week I'd come along to him and say, Bob, I think I've got a great title for the book. And I'd say it to him and he'd say, no. And I'd say, oh, no, not this one, Bob. No, that makes me sound special. And he wouldn't have it. Um, and I went through so many different ideas for a title. Um, and eventually I, I find the best way to title a book is to read back on what you've written. And one of the things he said to me while, was that during the occupation, because of the dreadful things that were happening and the things you had to go through. He said, we grew up fast in those days. And I thought, that's it. That's, that's my title, Growing Up Fast. And he looked at it. He scrutinised that title. And he thought about it and he chewed it over in that marvellous mind of his. And he said, yes, I believe that will do. Because that didn't blow his trumpet in yes. any way at all. Um, and so um, with the publisher as well, we talked about the subtitle because you need a little subtitle. And he would like to think of himself as an ordinary man in extraordinary times, which, of course, everybody in Jersey was at that time. Mm -hmm. There were lots and lots of... There were 45,000 ordinary people in Jersey during the occupation, but they all were living through an extraordinary time. So, yeah, that, that took a lot, of, um, a lot of working through to get that title. But it started in June 1940, didn't it, for Bob? He, he, you know, even before the Germans set foot, on, on, on the island, his, his occupation had begun with some excitement. Is that oh, right? Oh, yeah. Well, Bob, because Bob was a very um, intelligent man, he was a very inquiring man, he had a very inquiring mind, he always used to listen to the radio, to the BBC, to the news, and he knew that the Germans were on the way. Um, and uh, he'd sort of prepared himself, and his parents had prepared themselves mentally for this. They, they didn't believe the, the nonsense that some people were saying that, oh, the Germans wouldn't dare, because they, of course they would. And Bob realised that quite well. 28th of June, 1940. He, he lived um, just on the junction at First Tower, a house called Horizon View, which looks straight out to sea. And um, he was a lifetime swimmer, and he decided he was going to go swimming. So he took his towel and he walked across the road where the bunker is now, it used to be a slipway. And he walked down the slipway, went for a swim, and it was a lovely hot sunny day. And he got about 100 yards out to sea when he heard the noise of aircraft engines. And he looked up and wiped the salt out of his eyes and he could see the bombers approaching St Helier. And then there was a wee bang and he saw the explosions starting to hit the harbour area and in the sea around that area. And of course he was terrified. You don't want to be in the water when there's bombs dropping. So he swam as fast as he could back to the sea, back to the shore, 
picked up his towel and ran up the beach. And of course, running on the sand when you're terrified is a hard mm. thing to do. Um, and he got up to the top of the slipway and there was a bomber flying from the direction of Fort Regent along the avenue, firing its machine guns as it went. And he's, he always used to tell me with a laugh, he said, he, I threw myself under this bush to try to myself, make myself less of a target, as if the bush would have been any protection to me. Um, and he could see the bullets hitting the ground and kicking up the asphalt in front of him. The aeroplane passed over and he ran into the house and he knew then, they knew that this was serious. And, and um, <laughs> another story he used to tell of that moment was that as of his aunt, his aunt and uncle um, used to own uh, what was the Customs Hotel. It's now the Jaipur restaurant. And um, when they heard the bombs falling, they jumped on their bicycles and pedaled as fast as they could to Bob's house so they could be with family, whatever. And he said, my overriding memory of that day is seeing my aunt's enormous bloomers pegged out on our washing line because the bombing had had a most unfortunate effect upon her. <laughs> and was he was he a, a, a an agitator, you know, against the occupied forces from from day one, or in those early days, um, was it a case of just accepting occupation and getting on with it? Nobody knew what to expect, and of course there'd been these horror stories, as there were in the First World War, of the Germans bayoneting babies, raping women and things like that. And on the day before the Germans arrived, Bob was um, one of the hundreds who gathered in the Royal Square to watch the workmen paint the white cross on the floor there. And he'd overheard women saying, we must get home and lock our doors. There will be rapes and murders before nightfall. Um, and so they didn't know what to expect. And he said, on the very first day that the Germans arrived, because they lived on the avenue, they heard a, a vehicle coming down the road. And they went out to see what it was. And it was actually the airport bus that was used to take people to and from um, the airport terminal on the aeroplanes and things like that. And the Germans had purloined it and were driving down. And they stopped right next to his house. And they were watching from the front door. And these German soldiers came out. And Bob said, I was rather taken aback to see that they looked just like me. They were young men. They were excited to be in a new place. They had their uniforms on, but that was the only difference between us. And I think that was largely Bob's attitude, certainly at the beginning of the war. He was a very humanist man. He, he never wanted to take up arms. I mean, he, he was trying just before the war, just before the occupation began, to get on a boat to go away to join an ambulance unit or something like that. He never would have wanted to pick up a gun, but he would have helped um, in a non-aggressive way, if you like. But then the, the occupation began, things settled in, and yes, I think he thought, well, this isn't, they're not aggressive, these Germans. They pay for what they want in the shops. They don't bayonet babies. They don't rape women. They take their hats off and they uh, they offer their seats to people on the bus. You know, they're not the, the monstrous Huns that we thought they were going to be. He told the story of his mother who had an experience which he always remembered. He said his mother had been on the bus, on the bus on the way back from St. Helier with armfuls of shopping. The bus had gone over a bump and she dropped the shopping on the floor. And a German soldier stood up picked her shopping up for her and offered her his seat. And she came home and she said, what should I have done? What should I have done? I don't want to be seen as fraternising or collaborating with the Germans. What should I have done? This man offered me his seat. And Bob's immediate answer was, well, you should have taken it and you should have thanked him because he's nothing more than a well-brought-up young man doing what he thought was right. And how did, how did Bob... Moving, moving forward a little bit, how did he, he come to 
shelter Russian slaves. Well, it came about, first of all, in 1942 when the slaves arrived in Jersey. And Bob, again, living on the seafront there where he did, he saw the first column. He, he called it a great crawling column of misery shuffling up the road. And it was this sort of great grey mass of people who'd obviously been appallingly treated. They were starving, their eyes were cast down, they were wearing rags around their feet. And um, he always spoke of um, one young woman he saw as part of this great shuffling mass who had her pitiful belongings wrapped up in a bundle and she dropped it. Right. And she bent down to pick it up and this brutal overseer with his brown shirt on beat her with his stick and pushed her back into line and she had to leave what pitiful few belongings she had in the road. And for someone as compassionate as Bob, he was appalled, as were so many other Jersey people, um, by what he was seeing. And um, I think from that moment, <laughs> the way he used to describe it, he said, every society has dreadful individuals, but it takes a regime as dreadful as Nazism to make use of those people and actually to, to want to use their skills such as they are. Um, and it was that really that started Bob thinking, what can I do here? And I think he wasn't necessarily looking for an opportunity, but when, when, when one came, he took it in both hands. And that was enabled by his job and his ability to move around the island. Perhaps you could just describe that a little bit. That's right. He worked, um, <laughs> he worked in an insurance company. He was the very junior office boy when the war began. And uh, all of the other men of the office, the managers and all the other people, decamped. They pushed off, got on the boat and left him. He turned up one morning for work and there was just him and a secretary and all the others had gone. And so he immediately promoted himself to office manager, tripled his salary and um, managed very, very successfully to run the office for the rest of the war. But um, what it meant was that he had to get around to visit places, uh, people to see about their insurance claims, their premiums, things like that. And he went around the island on a bike. And um, one of the places he visited was um, out in the west of the island and it was a shop um, run by Louisa Gould um, down at St. Rue and um, the first time he went in there to see her she, she was claiming for a burnt hearth rug or something he went in to see her and she introduced him to the Frenchman that she had working behind the counter now Bob speaks French he was an excellent linguist and he spoke to this chap and he realised straight away that's not a French accent and he didn't say anything, and he went away and settled the insurance business, and then a couple of weeks later went to see her again. And he said to her on the quiet, I know what you're doing. Please be careful. And Louisa Gould immediately confessed and said, yes, he's a Russian prisoner. Um, he escaped from the quarry down at the bottom of the hill there. Um, and uh, I've been looking after him because my son was killed uh, in the Navy, and uh, I want to do something for another mother's son, which, of course, is the quotation that everybody attributes to her. And Bob, she said that those words to Bob. Um, and over the next few weeks, they became very friendly. Um, and uh, Bob got to know Russian Bill, as he was known. His real name was Fyodor Polikarpovich Buri, but he was known as Russian Bill because it's easier to say. And he got to know Louisa as well. But then, of course, uh, Louisa was betrayed. They got to hear about it a day before the Germans arrived, so Bob helped to clear the house of anything that could have betrayed the fact that Bill had been there. 
um, and uh, arranged to uh, take Bill elsewhere. Of course, Louisa and uh, her relatives were arrested. Louisa died in Ravensbrook. Uh, her brother Harold was the last British survivor of Belson. So they suffered appallingly because of the risk they'd taken. That didn't put Bob off. He spirited um, Bill away. The first place he hid him, the very first day, um, was in his own office because it was a weekend. He smuggled into his office at Hill Street, just on the sort of reverse side of where the state's buildings are now, and um, hid him in the office there and said, do not come out. Don't appear at the window. Um, and Bill was a fairly cantankerous character, apparently. He said, oh, it's all right. I'll just, I'll just have a look out the window sometimes. And Bob said, you will not. Because if you do, people will see you. And they'll say, who's that in the office this weekend? Anyway, uh, and after that, Bob determined to hide him. And he went around asking people, I've got someone who needs a place to stay. Would you be amenable to helping? Most people said yes, all right. Some said no. None of them betrayed him. And he was very, very careful not to tell anybody what he was doing. He was meticulous about that. And, and Bill wasn't the only slave that, that Bob helped? No, that's the problem. As, as the war went on, he, um, he found increasing numbers of people coming to him and saying, we understand that you're good at finding places for escaped prisoners to hide. And Bob, of course, would say, oh, is that what you hear? And until he trusted the person that they weren't just a stool pigeon, um, he wouldn't do anything. But uh, yes, eventually he ended up helping several others um, to escape and evade uh, the Germans. And he put them in safe houses all around the island and sort of kept a running tally of where each one was and the risks that they were taking. Uh, they didn't always help themselves. I mean, one of the, one of the um, places that he managed to hide one of the prisoners was at the old Mayfair Hotel, which was actually a German um, field, uh, like the equivalent of our NAFI, if you like. So the Germans coming and going all the time. Um, but the manager and manageress were happy to help, and they hid a slave worker in their personal quarters. And um, there was one time when a German actually tried to get in to inspect, and she said, would you dare enter a lady's bedroom? Did uh, I, I was just wondering whether he was ever close to getting caught. It's impossible to know, isn't it? Um, and he would say no. He always said no, I was safe because I was very, very careful. He never told anybody. I mean, not even his mum and dad. No one. The only people who knew were the people who were sheltering uh, the, the prisoners that he brought. And um, he kept himself, he kept it very, very quiet. He would always say as well that the people who ran the greatest risk were the people who were actually sheltering these prisoners. Some of those brave people, um, for example, had a flat uh, down at the bottom of the hill near Victoria College. And uh, they were two conscientious objectors. Um, and uh, they hid Bill in the attic, which is particularly brave because one of them gave... English lessons to German soldiers in the living room while there was an escaped Russian prisoner in the attic above with a bucket for bodily functions. Um, Bob would always say they were the brave people. Bob would always argue that people like them were the bravest of all of them because they actually ran the risk of having Bill in their house when the Germans could come knocking at any moment.
Yes. And was it was the motivation for Bob? Was it very much a, of, a, of a, there is someone who is suffering, I will help them? Or was it was there a political element as well of, of, of wanting to get his own back against the regime? Never a political element at all. Bob saw someone who was in need of his help. And so he helped. And that was Bob's attitude throughout his entire life. If there was a wrong being done to someone, he would want to see it right. And if people needed help, then he would help. And that really was Bob's attitude. And last, only last week, I said to him, uh, we were, I was asking him, how would you like to be remembered? And the first thing he said was, I'd like to be remembered as someone who did his best to help other people. And obviously he did that. If he saw a wrong being done to someone, he would want to right it. And was there recognition... Uh, once Liberation Day arrived and, and the island was free, was Bob recognised then at the time or is this something which has grown over subsequent years? Um, no, at the time he certainly wasn't. And um, I don't think any of these people were. And it's very interesting. I, I was researching the archives of the JEP actually and just um, a week or so after uh, Liberation... The, one of the people who, was, who had actually sheltered Bill, um, who had been a conscientious objector, which is why he came, um, Michael Froud and René Franu, that wrote to the JEP and said, OK, it's time for reconciliation now. There's too much backstabbing. There's too, much, too many people accusing each other of having um, collaborated, etc., etc. It's time to let bygones be bygones. There was an immediate backlash. Someone responded to that letter in the JEP and said, well, of course, it's easy for them to say this. They were a conchy of where were they when the bullets started flying? Where were they when our boys needed them? I shan't be taking any notice of what they have to say. Of course, what they didn't know, because they never said, was that these people had taken the enormous risk of sheltering escaped Russian slaves under the noses of the Germans, and they never told a soul. And Bob never told a soul either, and neither did many, many of the other people um, who had been involved in this sort of uh, underground activity in the island. Careless talk costs lives, and that's a lesson they learnt the hard way, and it stayed with them for years and years and years. Bob only found out 60 years after the event that the little office girl um, who did secretarial work in his office for him during the occupation used to carry messages from other underground operators to the American prisoners kept up at um, West Mount, rolled up in the handlebars of her bike. She never told him. She never told anyone for 60 years afterwards. And that really was the attitude. And that's the reason why perhaps Bob wasn't caught, because he kept it all very quiet. And what do you think that experience during that is five years of occupation, what sort of lessons did Bob take from that? Um, was it one of reconciliation? Absolutely, yes. That, that was his... He, he really wanted to get that message across for the whole of his life. Just like the, the, the other great historian, Michael Jins, and, who, and they were great friends, um, they preached reconciliation whenever they could. There's a, a well-known story of Bob's... He, and he always used to talk to me about it. The greatest regret of his life, and there were tears in his eyes when he told me this story, was um, on Liberation Day when he was riding his bike with his friends down towards Victoria Harbour to see the Allies arrive, the, the Tommies. And his 
front the, the front tire of his bike, which was made of an old garden hose held together with a metal clip, exploded. It went off with a great big loud bang like a revolver shot. And there were two Germans guarding a tunnel just opposite where he was. And he fell on the floor and they swung their rifles towards him and brought them up to aim at him. And he said, I can remember looking up and thinking, how ludicrous would it be to be shot now? the moment of liberation after all I'd been through but of course they didn't and they this one German soldier Bob thought he was 19 years old or so young lad looked at him looked at what had happened realised what had happened lowered his rifle and smiled at him and started to laugh um, and Bob said and I can picture him saying this to me now he said I thought this is extraordinary this young man has just lost everything he hasn't seen or heard from his family for months, possibly. His family may have been killed in the air raids. The belief structure that he's been brought up in, in Nazism and Adolf Hitler, has just fallen away and been proven to be worthless. He's starving. He's cold. He's about to go into a prison camp and be made a prisoner of war. But still, he can have a laugh with me. He's just another young man. And Bob said, all I wanted to do at that moment was to go and shake him by the hand. But I didn't, because I was worried what the Jersey people around me might think of me. And he said, that is the, he said, I am ashamed of myself. that I never shook his hand in friendship at that moment. And he was so passionate about that. Even last week, he, wanted to talk about that and he said that was the greatest regret of his life and when you live to the age of 102 you must have a lot of regrets but that was his greatest regret and that level of understanding and be able to see the 360 look of a situation is that one of the reasons why you uh, you you don't he, he wouldn't see himself as a hero <laughs> he would just have none of that he would glare at you very strongly Yes, okay. Just like that. Um, <laughs> if you dared consider referring to him as a hero. And so every time I've ever written or spoken about him, I refer to him as occupation survivor, historian, whatever, the man who helped to um, shelter Russian prisoners, all of that, that's fine. Mention the word hero, absolutely not. He was having none of it. He's clearly remem best remembered for for his, his his war years, but obviously Bob had a very long life after the war. Tell me a little bit about his post-war years and, and, and the bulk of his life. Well, I think most people will in Jersey will remember him as a teacher. Uh, he taught at Holia for a long time, and I'm told that he was inspiring. He taught English, he taught modern languages because he'd learnt Spanish. He'd taught himself Spanish with the aid of Spanish workers who were in a camp up at Lemoy during the war. And he thought, I want to learn Spanish, I'll go and correspond with them. So he taught himself Spanish, he spoke very good French as well, and he would inspire people. Um, I was reading uh, a, a memory that somebody shared of him um, singing La Cucuracha um, in one of his lessons with glee and you know, excitement and he passed that on to the students that he taught and uh, he had a huge overwhelming love of language uh, of the English language particularly and he was incredibly well read and knowledgeable and anybody that was taught by Bob I think was very lucky in that regard because he would pass on his enthusiasm and his love of languages and things to them. 
Uh, he was also very well travelled. In his 60s and 70s, he decided he wanted to see the world. And he wrote journals of his travels, several volumes of travels, to the extent that you could say to him, oh, well, a few months ago I said, Bob, I'm off to Norway. Oh, yes, Norway. And he'd tell you all about Norway, everything there was to know. He told me all about Norway because he'd actually worked there for, for a while, selling tea, which is one of the early jobs he had when he came back to Jersey before he became a teacher. Um, but uh, his travels were extraordinary. His recall was absolutely unbelievable of dates, times, places, not only of the places that he visited and the people that he'd met, but of people throughout history. He could tell you blow by blow the story of the Franco-Prussian Wars, for example. Um, he could uh, tell you about why the Republicans might beat the Democrats in the American election with times, dates, places, people, references, everything. Um, he could recite Shakespeare. Uh, he could... Uh, well, he just had the, the most, even until the day he died, he had incredible recall and love of knowledge and detail and words. He loved words. His vocabulary was extraordinary. And um, he passed that on to so many people through through his teaching and everything. And, and tell me about, obviously, he's best remembered in recent times for his, his 5,000 steps for uh, to support Ukraine. What, what, what prompted him to do that? As I said before, he saw a wrong being done to people and he wanted to help. And it wouldn't have mattered what country it had been in. If he saw a wrong being done to someone, he wanted to be part of the solution. And he couldn't walk very well at all. It caused him great pain and discomfort to walk. But he was inspired by Captain Sir Tom Moore, who'd uh, walked around his garden to raise money um, in his own way. And Bob thought, well, I'll do that then. So he bought himself a yellow and blue jumper and he took himself out on his Zimmer frame to hobble around his garden, and uh, he did it. And he wouldn't. Once Bob had made up his mind to something, he was not to be swayed, and so he was out, rain or shine, and often in the rain. No, I'm going to do it, and he did. And if Bob said he was going to do it, then he damn well did it, and uh, he was quite extraordinary uh, in that way. I mean, he he set his mind. To, to, to many other things as well. Uh, and he was a, a, a heritage campaigner, for example. The, the, the heritage of Jersey was very, very important for him. So he worked with Jersey Heritage, he worked with the Societe, uh, he worked with the Occupation Society, uh, Men of the Trees, passionately. Uh, he was also, um, he worked, worked very hard for charities and raised money for what he saw as deserving causes, particularly in Africa. He, he um, would sponsor villages to have water supplies. He'd sponsor schools to be built. He'd sponsor young children who showed potential to have a proper education and go to university. And he's so proud when one of them became a doctor because of the help that he'd given. And to the end of his life, Bob had practically no money. He was absolutely skint. He had no money at all. Because everything he had, he gave away. And if he, if you needed something, Bob would give it to you if he had it, without a second's thought. Would you would you give him the title of a, of a great Jerseyman? Of course I would. Yes, yes I mean, you, of course I would. And the word great and the word hero has lost currency in the current generation, hasn't it? Because we describe everyone as, oh, he's a real hero. No, that word is overused. Um, the word great is overused, and I would like to use it properly. Bob, of course, would have none of it. Um, oh, don't talk such rot, he would say. But yes, of course, he was a great Jerseyman because he inspired people and he led by example. And I think in order to be great, you have to do that. 
What do you think Bob's legacy should be? I, th- I would like to hope that he would be remembered as an example and an inspiration to people of selflessness, of compassion, of dignity, of generosity, of eloquence and single-mindedness and determination to be the best person that he could be and to be as good to other people for the good of humanity as he could be. That was his ethos in life, to be as good as he could be to other people and to cause uh, and to treat people as kindly and as fairly as he could. Um, I think that's his legacy for me. And I hope that people who remember him or even people who just hear about him will consider his example in their lives. And absolutely, he is a great Jersey man, no doubt about that. Don't tell him, though, because he'd have none of it. Thanks to Chris Stone for talking with me today. And thank you for listening to the Bailiwick podcast. You can find the podcast on all the usual pod places. And don't forget to like and share. The music at the beginning and end of this podcast is I Shift My Weight by Luno. Tune in next week for more.